so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast of the Research Institute of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as a senior fellow in Christian ethics, as well as overseeing the Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonfactor.com slash weekly tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dennis Hollinger to talk about his new book entitled Creation and Christian Ethics, Understanding God's Designs for Humanity and the World from Baker Academic. Today, we discuss how creation speaks to the foundations of the Christian ethic and how we might go about recovering a richer vision of humanity in light of God's creation. Dennis Hollinger is President Emeritus and Senior Distinguished Professor of Christian Ethics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He received a B.A. from Elizabethtown College, the M.Div. from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, the M.Phil. and Ph.D. from Drew University, and did postdoctoral studies at Oxford University. He has written a number of works on Christian ethics, including Choosing the Good, Christian Ethics in a Complex World, and The Meaning of Sex, Christian Ethics in the Moral Life. And now let's join the conversation. Well, Dr. Hollinger, thank you so much for joining us today here on the podcast. It's been a really exciting conversation. I've been really looking forward to this, to dive into your new book, Creation and Christian Ethics, that was recently released from Baker Books. Uh, But before we dive into the book itself, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. Obviously, you have been studying and teaching for many years in the field of Christian ethics. You've been there at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, you're President Emeritus. I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and your journey as well as kind of what sparked your devotion to studying and devoting much of your life to the Christian ethics. Well, thanks, Jason. It's a great privilege to be with you today. On the ethics side, I often say there are a few things in my childhood that I think led me into the field of Christian ethics. I was born in southern, rural, racist Alabama. My parents were from Pennsylvania, and my dad did church planting work in southern Alabama. And so uh, I grew up there in in early 1950s in a a time in which there was a great deal of racism. I saw the Ku Klux Klan in action. I remember some of the attitudes of kids on my school bus. And I often say I think my social conscience was awakened uh, when I was six, seven, eight, nine years old. I also had a special needs brother, an older brother. And when I was young, I was embarrassed by him in many ways. 
But I think that uh, having Jim, my brother, older brother, really began to force me to ask the question, who is a human being and how do we count as humans? And then after high school, I went to Moody Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. First of all, I was there when uh, Dr. King was assassinated and the racial riots uh, broke out. And I began to think as Christians, as evangelical Christians, I'm not sure we know how to respond to what's going on. I went on, did my liberal arts uh, college, and then went to seminary, late 60s, 1970s. It was a time of a great deal of ferment in our culture. Uh, The Vietnam War, for example, this sexual revolution was going on. There were just uh, lots of questions up in the air. And I found myself asking, uh, what as Christians are we to be doing? How do we respond to some of the changes that are occurring in our culture? In the midst of that, I had a number of professors in seminary who really encouraged me to think about going on for PhD work. And so I did. And uh, over the years, have uh, taught seminary. I also have pastored, including a stint in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Great place to think about ethical issues and the relationship of faith and culture. And then uh, the last number of years, moving into uh, leadership roles in uh, higher education, the last 11 years serving as the president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. But even as I moved into administration, I continued to teach at least one course every semester. And I tried to keep up a bit in the field. Now that I'm retired, I've got the time to think and write, and, uh, and that's very, very rewarding. I've also been blessed with the opportunity of having taught and lectured in various countries around the world. It's really interesting teaching ethics in a different culture. This past spring, I was in Sri Lanka teaching at Colombo Theological Seminary, and it's a country that has gone through tremendous turmoil over the years. And so walking with these students as they're reflecting on how the church should respond to um, a long, long civil war and, and to the bigotry and to the corruption that is now occurring in business and government. And I think my own thinking has been greatly expanded by being in those kinds of settings. So that's kind of the broader background, Jason, in terms of my entry into the field of ethics. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I think many of us live indebted to you in many ways. Many of us have read your books over the years, especially Choosing the Good. I know that's been a kind of a core ethics book for many, many people when they've taken studies in Christian ethics and diving into big questions of moral philosophy and the Christian life. And I love how you frame that up of that question of, what counts as a human being or what does it mean to be human? We've long said, even especially here on the podcast, but at the RLC in general, that that question of what does it mean to be human really is at the center, if not the central question that people are asking today, whether it's questions of racial over to sexuality, to so many different aspects when we say, well, what does it mean to be human? Um, And I think obviously that's a central question of Christian ethics, as you've well shown us, um, but also ties into a lot of the themes in this particular book, this idea that God created the world to function in a particular way, obviously in glorifying him. And so as we think about this book, I always love when I talk to authors about their books. Um, Books are kind of almost like a child in some sense. I don't want to draw too much of a parallel there, but in some senses, there's a whole process. I think a lot of people, you see a book, you're like, oh, they probably wrote this not too long ago, but really it's years in the making, especially kind of a more academic volume that's a lot of researching, built off experience. 
Tell us a little of the story of this book. Why did you want to write this book and why now? What area did you see in Christian ethics that was lacking that you said, I really think we need to talk more about the role of creation? Well, I think that creation has been neglected for a long time, particularly among evangelical Christians. And when we dealt with creation, uh, we usually got into the controversies. When did God create? How did God create? Did God use natural processes in creation? And we overlooked, I think, the the genre of literature that we have in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a story. It's a narrative, a true narrative, I believe. But it portrays theological understanding. It really portrays who we as human beings are. I think what really pushed me to begin dealing with this, as you know, I have done a lot of writing and lecturing over the years on sexual ethics And I saw a number of people, including folks from the evangelical world, who were buying into revisionist understandings about sex and sexuality, and basically arguing, we need to look to Jesus, we need to look to the kingdom, but uh, either neglecting creation, and in some cases, outright repudiating creation as having anything to do with our understanding of sexuality and sex. That's what began to push me. And then as I began to probe more deeply, I saw there's a tremendous richness in creation. And so, you know, as as I start the book with why creation for Christian ethics, and my response to that is several fold. Uh, One is the biblical story is really incomplete, and I would even say incoherent without creation. We talk about the biblical story, of course, as creation, fall, redemption, and a final consummation. You can't understand the fall without a creation. Even redemption doesn't make sense without understanding what are the designs of God for which he is redeeming us. And with the final consummation, uh, many of us grew up with an eschatology in which you have discontinuity between creation and eschatology. But I think many people uh, are coming to understand that no, the final eschaton is really a restoration back to what God intended from the very beginning. And so uh, the biblical story is incoherent without it. Second thing, and this really struck me as I uh, began to work on this project, is how frequently creation comes up in the scriptures all throughout, all the genre of scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. You find it in the Psalms, you find it in the prophets, you find it in Jesus. Jesus, of course, has asked the, the question about divorce in Matthew 19. What does he do? He immediately goes to creation, both Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, God created the male and female, and then God says a man shall leave father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus there is appealing back to creation as he responds to the divorce question. The book of Hebrews makes various references back to creation. I even think that the doctrine of the Trinity is at stake in all of this. If you pit Jesus and the kingdom over against creation, we're really dividing up the Holy Trinity. And as theologians have noted for a number of years, you cannot have the command of God the Creator standing over against God the Redeemer. Otherwise, you pull the Holy Trinity apart. So that is at stake. So I think all of these are reasons why creation is vitally important, both theologically 
And then as I worked on this project, looked at the theological themes, I saw all the paradigms emerging, as I like to call it, the ethical paradigms. And then as you apply the paradigms, you begin to see just a tremendous amount of implication for ethical issues with which we're wrestling today. Yeah, obviously, even just hearing you say that, there's so much to unpack here. I mean, we're just going to barely be able to scratch the surface in some sense in an interview like this. But it's one of those things that, especially in recent years, one of the reasons I was excited to grab a a copy of this volume when it came out, um, especially in my tradition, but even kind of the broader Protestant tradition in general, um, in certain places, in certain circles, we're seeing kind of a resurgence of whether we talk about kind of the metaphysical aspects of Christian ethics especially natural law ethics. Obviously, natural law ethics has been kind of a central facet of Roman Catholic social teaching and um, moral philosophy for a number of years. But even in Protestant circles, we're starting to see a resurgence or kind of a calling back to this kind of created order. We're talking about natural law ethics, natural law theory. And I wanted to say one of the things you do early on in the volume is kind of define this is natural law ethics, and then you kind of distinction make a distinction between this idea of creation ethics, a little bit different. And I wanted to see if you could frame that up for us. What are the similarities between those two approaches to Christian ethics, and what are some of the, the differences in that sense? Well, just uh, so your uh, listeners can understand, natural law is the tradition that says God has created this world in such a way that through observation— through experience, and through reason, we can understand God's designs and God's law. And so it is found, of course, most explicitly in the Roman Catholic tradition and Thomas Aquinas, in which there is an appeal to a natural law in order to really probe most of the understanding about ethical issues. We as Protestants, of course, focus primarily on Scripture as the foundation for our ethics. And I think a lot of evangelicals in recent years have been somewhat enamored with natural law as a means of trying to communicate in a pluralistic society where people are not open to hearing scripture. But interestingly, a number of my uh, Catholic friends have said, Dennis, we are facing as much an uphill battle getting an acceptance of natural law as you Protestant evangelicals are experiencing in terms of a more biblical, theological approach to ethics. That is the assumptions of the the larger world around us, the assumptions of our culture, in many ways make it hard for people to accept either a more straightforward biblical ethic or a natural law kind of ethic. I uh, often say the big divide in ethics today is between those who believe there's an essence to things and those who believe there isn't an essence, whether that be marriage or government or any number of realities that we're dealing with. I think that is probably the big divide. And of course, one of the reasons that Aristotle, who was kind of the foundation of you, if you will, of natural law ideas, one of the reasons um, that Aristotle found a hearing in the Christian church, particularly in in the Roman tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition, was that Aristotle believed there were givens in reality to which we ought to adhere as human beings. But my project uh, is, yes, there's some overlap with natural law, but I'm really trying to work more explicitly with biblical motifs coming out of creation, both out of the creation story and out of creation text. So yes, there's some overlap there, but I think there's some distinction in that I'm really probing 
the creation story, particularly as a foundation for our ethics today. Yeah, I, I like the way you're approaching that and help us to think so clearly. And one of the things that reminds me of is a new little volume from David Van Drunen, uh, not too long ago in the new Essentials in Christian Ethics series that I'm helping co-edit. And one of the things that Van Drunen makes a distinction, and I just like the way he frames it, he says, there's a difference between natural law and natural law theory. In the sense of the presence of natural law, this kind of created metaphysical ordering um, that we obviously see attested to even in scripture. It's kind of, I love how he says, you know, early on in Genesis, you see even with Pharaoh, there are just certain things that ought not be done. There are certain things that are just known that God has clearly revealed that law as we see in, uh, with Paul that's written on our hearts. Um, but in the sense of what do we say about that law, that's a lot of where that kind of division of, in some sense comes. And that's where historically, I think the church, when you look at the long kind of tradition of Christian kind of ethics in general, even theology in many ways, there seems to be a rich connection between creation and Christian ethics. But I don't know what happened. It seems like there's a break or a change in the tradition. And I'm not sure there's a lot of theories on why that may be the case. But I remember David Oderberg not too long ago or maybe a while ago wrote something about even within the natural law tradition, there's been a time that people downplay some of the metaphysical aspects of even the natural law tradition, primarily focusing on reason rather than some of those metaphysical foundations. Obviously, nothing happens in a vacuum. And it's something I try to tell my students all the time, when you're looking at history, when you're thinking about big ideas, nothing happens in a vacuum, and we can reject a lot of the simplistic narratives. But I'd love to hear from you what seems to shift, because you go back to many of the reformers, and they seem to be appealing to creation, some of these metaphysical aspects, something happens, and then we're seeing this resurgence. What? How do you think through some of those realities and the ways that we as the church have talked about the nature and kind of the structure of Christian ethics? I think, Jason, that it probably has to do with our neglect of theological anthropology, reflections on who we as human beings are. And if you look back at systematic theologies from, let's just say, the scholastic period after the Reformation, right up into contemporary times, yeah, we always had a small section on anthropology. What did it focus on? Well, primarily being created in the image of God, all different definitions surrounding that, and then the fall, and interestingly, mostly on the fall. And we neglected a lot of these other things that I'm really probing in the book. Just my whole chapter on finitude, for example, I find it very, very interesting that very few theologies do much with the whole concept of being created as finite beings. And that's not a deficit in human beings. It really is a, it's a positive thing, the way uh, God created us. And Kelly Kapek and his uh, new book on finitude is just very, very helpful along these lines. This is not a deficiency that we are limited finite, created, bounded human beings. It's a good thing, and we acknowledge that in life. But somewhere along the line, I think we, and some I had to do, I'm, I'm sure, with the, the battles that were going on theologically. We focused, of course, on, on the deity of Christ and the meaning of salvation. We focused on uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, all the battles, of course, that went on in eschatology. But I think that somehow over these last few centuries, we neglected theological reflection on human beings. Who are we as humans? And so that, I think, is, is why the, the neglect as I see it. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you framed it that because the next question I was going to ask you is kind of on that idea of theological anthropology and the image of God. I remember years ago on a, the Digital Public Square podcast, I was interviewing Benjamin Glad, and I was asking him kind of this neglected doctrine of the Imago Dei. And it's interesting because even when I teach students, we'll often talk about Genesis 1 and 2 being created in the image of God, and we have the fall. And many assume, even when you kind of press to say, they'll say, well, the image of God is not really a a central theme or even doctrine. It's very rarely ever mentioned. I've read this before many times and say, you don't really see it much throughout the Old Testament after that. And then all of a sudden, kind of in the New Testament, Jesus is the true image of God and the resurrected King. And all of these things are true. But I remember Dr. Glad saying at RTS, he said, it's one of those central kind of underlying themes throughout all of scripture. It's this almost this assumption that is happening on the basis of all of these other things that are going on are being argued on the basis of who God is and how he made us in his very image to reflect him. And there's lots of different interpretations, obviously, of the image that you've kind of referenced. But I love that idea of this central question of Christian ethics today and really always is what does it mean to be human and how this concept of the Imago Dei gives us this framework for agency and accountability before God. But it also reminds us that, as we have already said, kind of it helps we are to reflect and to represent him as part of creation. When we talk about the nature of creation, including the creation of humanity in God's image, how does that understanding actually help to strengthen our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity or God's self-disclosure in creation? Because I think some will say there's too much emphasis being put on humanity and others say, no, actually, we're kind of neglecting what our true essence is. How does this idea of theological anthropology help to shape kind of the rest of our theology in many ways, like help to flesh out, um, especially as we're thinking through the nature of creation? I think there there are a number of ways we can get at this. Uh, One is to start with the fact that uh, we are physical material beings and the physical material realities of creation in Genesis 1 are pronounced good. You just have this very interesting phrase after every day of creation, it is good, it is good, it is good. And finally, you come to verse 31 in chapter 1 of Genesis, God looks at all he has made, and it is very good. Now, what's good? It's not what we often think of as spiritual realities. It's almost all physical, material realities. And, of course, the Christian church struggled with this. Uh, We had uh, movements called Gnosticism in the second, third century that denied the material and the physical realm of life. Uh, So much so that you had one aspect of of the movement called Docetism, in which people rejected the idea that Jesus had a real physical material body, meaning, therefore, that the physical material was not instrumental to who we really were or are as human beings. You had a lot of asceticisms that developed. Jerome, for example, was not a Gnostic. And of course, he's very important in church history because he translated the Bible into Latin. That becomes the really official translation of scripture for a thousand years. Pretty significant guy. But when it came to sexuality and marriage, he he didn't reject marriage But he says, if you really, this is a paraphrase, if you really want to be spiritual, you'll neglect for a period of time your wife's embrace, or we would say today, your husband's embrace, if you really want to be spiritual, meaning that somehow there's an incompatibility between the physicality and the way God created us and what is a holy and good life. 
And so this goodness is strongly affirmed, not just in creation with it, it is good, but also the incarnation. God actually takes on human flesh and he lives among us. That in itself is a great affirmation of who we are as human beings. We're embodied human beings. Uh, or as I like to put it in my one chapter, embodied souls are in soul bodies. And then you have a, uh, a physical resurrection at the end and the resurrection of the body, not a resurrection of the soul, resurrection of the body. So you put all that together, that really tells us a lot about the world God created and humans created in it. The physicality counts so much so that William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, middle of the 20th century, said Christianity is the most materialistic religion in the world. Now, he didn't mean by that love of money, but what he meant by that, of all the great religions of the world, biblical Christian faith gives the greatest affirmation to the physical, material realms of life. Therefore, I I entitle my chapter uh, on this goodness, it's a good world after all, then dot, 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 money, sex, and power. And my, my starting assumption there is that when we deal with those three issues, what we often think of the big three in our world today, ethically, the starting point for Christians ought to be, these are good gifts of God, and therefore we need to protect them. It's very different than saying, oh, we just have to struggle, you know, with these issues that are upon us, money, sex, and power. But if you start with the positive, it puts it in a whole different perspective. That, I think, is one of the things that feeds into our understanding about who we are as humans and, and our life in it. And then the other thing I would say, Jason, when, when we look at the Imago Dei, it's very interesting. Scripture does not define it. And of course, we've had all the great debates that have gone on by biblical exegetes and theologians about what constitutes the image of God. The one thing that is clear, however, is that because we are created in the image of God, Humans stand apart. They have value. They have dignity. So much that God would send his son into the world to die for us, to redeem us. And uh, there's evidence of this, of course, in Genesis chapter 9. Why is murder wrong? Because we're created in the image of God. It's interesting in the book of James, the epistle to James, he deals with the tongue and the power of the tongue, which can praise God on the one hand, but can curse human beings on the other hand. And why is that a significant issue? Because we are made in the likeness of God, James says. I think it's very interesting. But then, as you pointed out, it is an underlying assumption, I think, in many other biblical texts and many other theological understandings that we hold. Psalm 8, of course, being a a wonderful indication. I mean, that's just filled with Imago Dei understandings, even though the language of image of God is not used there. I like how you frame up, especially your chapters dealing with sexuality. It's interesting to note because depending on who's kind of thinking about ethics, sometimes Christian ethics is all about sex. That's the only thing we talk about, or it seems to be rarely emphasized, but you're not going at it in a negative approach. Obviously, you're starting. We talk about some of the challenges we face today, but also some of the goodness of creation, the goodness of our sexuality, the goodness of sex, the sexual union itself between a man and a woman and that lifelong union of marriage. I like how you frame that up in kind of a positive way because it it always strikes me. I have my students, uh, when we're doing Intro to Ethics, we read a little introduction to Peter Singer's 
practical ethics. And one of the things he does in that very early on is say, often when we think of Christians in particular talking about ethics, it's always just a nasty set of puritanical prohibitions. And I like the way he phrases that. And I think he's speaking to something that's true, honestly. Honestly, the way that sometimes we talk about ethics, but it's so much more than that. It's not less than talking about the way God's designed for sex and sexuality, but more than that. And I like the way that you frame it up, not only in the sense of focusing on the goodness, but how we were created for relationships. I think that's a a neglected aspect and something that's actually very kind of potent for today as we focus so much on kind of this autonomous individual. It's me, myself, how I define myself, but I don't define myself as part of a community or in light of others. And we see that with love God and love our neighbors or stuff, that outward oriented nature of loving God. And loving our neighbor as ourself, this kind of outward focus in a day that's very kind of inward focused in many ways, self-defined, self-determined uh, reality. Help us to think about the way that creation, kind of unpack a little bit some of the themes that you approach there, the way that creation should shape our approach to questions of identity or sexuality or even the goodness of sex. How does creation shape and kind of remind us of that essence that's really there? Well, I think on, on the relational side, The first time something is said not to be good in Scripture is in chapter two, it is not good for the man to be alone. That is a rich, rich theological statement. And one of the things, of course, we have uh, struggled with as American church is our individualism. I mean, we talked today, I mean, Charles Taylor and Sneed and and, uh, Carl Truman and others writing about what we call expressive individualism, this sense of autonomy. But Individualism has been at the heart of American culture for a long time, and there are positive aspects of that. We we don't ever want to denigrate it. To me, a a good biblical theology is neither collectivistic on the one hand, in which the individual is lost, nor is it individualistic, in which the sense of community is lost. But we are created for relationship, and, and the starting relational paradigm, if you will, is the family. And that starts, of course, with sexuality, created male and female. It then moves to the physical intimacy, the gift of sex, which consummates a marriage, which expresses love, which brings children into the world, all those various functions. But it's really interesting to me that the very first command that God gives to human beings in chapter one of Genesis is to be fruitful, multiply or as I sometimes put it in very clear vernacular, first command God gives is have sex. Experience the beauty of this intimacy, which is far more than just pleasure. Pleasure it is. A pleasure is not the result of the devil's uh, actions. A pleasure is a good gift of God as well. That's part of it, obviously. It's an expression of love. But it also is the act that consummates a marriage It now sets this relationship apart from all other relationships, and it brings children into the world. And and as I've written, uh, and I I deal with this a bit in the book, but uh, more fully in my book on the meaning of sex. And in in that understanding, we recognize that the various elements surrounding sexuality and physical intimacy be have to be held together. What has happened today is that we've pulled apart the pleasure part from the procreation part. 
we pulled apart the love from that one flesh concept. Uh, some would even add in here a sacramental language that the physical intimacy in a marriage reminds us of God's love for us in our union with him, really picking up on Paul's argument in Ephesians about where he quotes the Genesis 2 text on the one flesh and says, I'm, I'm talking now about the church and about God's love for his people. And so we see the richness of this understanding. I think it's hard for us to understand all of this precisely, as you point out, because of the autonomy and the way we operate today as human beings. Uh, We see ourselves as lone rangers. We see ourselves as individuals who can define for ourselves what is the good, the right, and the just. And uh, that's partly why we experience, I think, today uh, greater challenges when it comes to Christian ethics. It's why even a natural law argument today will not work as easily as it once did, perhaps. Those are some of the challenges. But as I point out in the book, um, I not only have a chapter on creative for relationship, dealing with marriage, sexuality, etc., but a whole chapter on social institutions, which aren't directly stated, but as I argue, the stuff of the social institutions is there in Genesis 1 and 2. And so uh, what what we mean by the social institutions are things like economics, education, the state, I include the media, recreation, leisure enterprises. We could add in, and and I write about this in other venues and and, uh, work in this area, the whole healthcare institution. I serve on a healthcare ethics committee here in Charlotte for one of the major hospitals. And uh, these are the social institutions that come out of being created for relationship. Are they fallen? Absolutely. Are they sometimes oppressive? We certainly know that. But we also recognize that because God created us for relationship, we will find ways of coalescing together as human beings in which these institutions are then formed and we flourish as human beings best when we have healthy social institutions. And uh, we, we can't turn them into the kingdom of God. We can't turn them into a theocracy. That's not why God ordained the state. And I think that sometimes there are Christians who want to turn the state into a theocracy. We've had attempts at that, and it's failed. And I sometimes say to people, if you want to live in a theocracy, then go to uh, perhaps Saudi Arabia or uh, go to Iran and live there and see how that works. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I think we begin to realize the difficulty. There, there are two kingdoms, and we understand that our primary membership is in the kingdom of God. That doesn't negate the kingdoms of this world, but we have to understand they are distinct and they are not the same. And so what we have to do today, it seems to me, is find ways of how do we live within these kingdoms of the world, or if we can put it simply, the social institutions, and be salt and light there in the midst of this very pluralistic society in which we find ourselves today. That's the great challenge, I think, that, that we really are facing. Well, one of the things that you also do in this volume, and I'm really, I like the way that you frame that conversation around the social institutions. One of the projects that myself and some of our research fellows here at the ERLC are working on is defining a Baptist social ethic. When we're talking about kind of a societal vision, when we think about not just the personal aspects, but kind of the social aspects, there's a lot to consider there. 
the late Carl Henry once lamented at the lack of a coherent kind of social vision or a social ethic for Baptists. And that's something that we're working on. And one of the aspects of that you actually touch on in this volume of this question of the rhythms of work as well as rest and leisure. And that's an area of Christian ethics that I find fascinating, but there's not as much there's not as many resources kind of diving into some of those. I think sometimes we kind of camp out on some kind of hot button issues or cultural kind of upheavals, different things that are going on. The question of the rhythms of work and leisure, obviously creation has a, a large bearing on that conversation as well. You even think in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created us, be fruitful and multiply, and he also gave us work to do. Uh, that work isn't a product of the fall, I always told my students, but it's actually part of the goodness of creation that we were created for. Um, but we also know that our work is hard, that the ground fights back against us in the sense of the kind of the Genesis 3 reality. How does God's design for vocation and for our work and this priority of the Sabbath kind of play into this kind of almost drive towards efficiency in everything, this kind of mechanization of all of society? Help us think through the role of creation in terms of our vocation and our leisure. Yeah, no, a, a great, great question, Jason. I think it's just beautiful that these are so interwoven in the creation narrative. As, as you point out, uh, God is described as a worker. So that you get to chapter two, he rests from what? His work, from his labors. Jesus comes into the world. How does he come in? He, well, first years of his life, he's a carpenter. That's what he's known as uh, in his hometown in, in Nazareth. All of that gives a sense that work is important. It is not a result, as you mentioned, of the fall. It really is ordained by God in creation to care for God's good creation, to nurture it, to develop what we call the cultural mandates. And so in, in Genesis 2.15, for example, uh, you have the, the text, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Interestingly, evadah, the word that is used there for work, sometimes it's translated work, sometimes service, sometimes worship. And the, the two Hebrew words there, work and care for, are used in conjunction with the priests in the tabernacle, that those two words come together to describe the work of the priesthood, which I find very, very significant. I think all of this then plays into the concept that the reformers had of work as a vocation that, that Luther and Calvin Melanchthon and others uh, talked about as very important. But work is not the end all. And of course, we uh, often today find that many people turn their work into an idol, into a God. And that is precisely why God rests from all of his labors and sets aside this period of time, this, as I like to put it, rhythm of life as he gives the injunction for the Sabbath. Now, th the sad thing is when we have talked about Sabbath over the years, we get embroiled in the controversies. Is it to be the first day of the week as the early church seemed to practice, or was it the, the, uh, the, the seventh day? We've gotten embroiled into the debates about what we could do and what we couldn't do on the Sabbath. And I think we, in the midst of this, overlook what I see as three significant principles that have great ethical importance for us from the Sabbath principle. The first of these, of course, is worship. Uh, we stop making the world to realize that God already made it. One period a week, we stop everything. The big issue there is not when we do it. 
obviously pastors are working on Sundays. Uh, they, they've got to find time, uh, other time during the week. Uh, their various vocations, various cultures can't do it on either a Saturday or a Sunday. So the time is not the, it's really this rhythm of life in which we take time apart to worship with God's people. Second is self-care, the principle of self-care. And that's, I think, very clear as the Sabbath gets worked out throughout the Old Testament. Very clear, of course, in the Decalogue, in, in the commandment regarding the Sabbath to care for oneself physically, emotionally, spiritually. But third is care for others, i.e. justice. And I find it very interesting that the Sabbath gets worked out in the Old Testament, applied to the Sabbath year. Every seven years, you let the uh, corners of your fields go for the poor, for the sojourner. You, the, the seventh year, you don't come through and harvest the crops. You allow the, uh, and, and of course, this is good agricultural practice too, but you allow the fields to be dormant for that year in terms of your own activity so that the sojourner, we would say today, the immigrant, the poor among you may come and have food. Now, you know, we don't live in agricultural societies. We have to find other ways about how we put into practice those kind of justice measures. You had the Jubilee year, seven, seven years, 50th year, if you will, in which the land was to be returned back to the original owner. It was a land-based economy. And uh, we don't live in a, uh, a land-based economy anymore today. So we have to find new measures about how we take that principle. But all of those we're taking what God established in creation on that rest, on that Sabbath, instituted very clearly in the Decalogue, and then worked out in, in the rest of Scripture as key principles of worship, self-care, and justice. All of that then balanced with our work. And uh, that's the thing I think we all wrestle with at a very personal level. How do I balance out my my worship and my self-care and doing justice uh, for my neighbor and for our world? How do I balance that out with the commitments of my job? But you hold them together. You know, one of the things I think the longer I live, the more I realize we have a lot of creative tensions in the Christian faith and uh, it, holding them together. We don't do a good job of that. Many of the tensions we want to resolve on one side or the other rather than holding them together. I mean, just the example that we've already talked about today, we're wonderfully made in the image of God and we're terribly fallen. You have to hold those together. That informs our political theories, how we think about political life, uh, civic life. And it's, uh, it's not easy. Uh, the liberal side, the progressive side wants to emphasize the wonderfully made aspect. And uh, sometimes on the more conservative side, uh, the terribly fallen and hence our need of Christ. And we hold them both together, the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. And the same, I think, uh, holds thing when we think about work and Shabbat or Sabbath. Well, obviously, there is so much more in that conversation, even just to unpack, much less uh, what you do throughout the rest of this volume, Creation and Christian Ethics, a recent release from Baker Books. Um, but Dr. Hollander, I want to ask you, as we round out our time together as we're thinking through kind of next resources, one of the things we like to do here at the RLC, one of our mandates is to assist churches as we seek to apply the moral and ethical demands of the gospel to everyday life. What are some of those resources 
uh, whether it be historical or even contemporary, that you would recommend to people if they want to pick up and dig a little bit deeper? Obviously, we want them to grab a copy of this book, but any works that you found helpful that you were consulting often as you were writing something like this that you would recommend to kind of put in the hands of listeners if they wanted to dig deeper? I think a couple of things I would mention. I think on the doctrine of creation, Ashford and Bartholomew's book, The Doctrine of Creation, is very helpful. If you want to go deeper into a a theological understanding of creation and theological anthropology, I mentioned Kelly Capick's book, and, and the title of that book is You're Only Human which is really a great title. You're only human. And uh, it's a very practical book. It's well-written. It's just received a a lot of accolades, and I think rightfully so. I think a a book that I found very, very helpful, more on the sociological side of things, was the book by Levine, and the title is escaping me at the moment, but on social institutions and the importance of social institutions. You've all of in Time to Build. A time to build. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. That's why we need each other in this process. We're not meant to be alone. (laughs) Uh, That's a really rich book. And the Trinity Forum and other Christian groups, he's Jewish, Jewish writer. He works in one of the think tanks in Washington, D.C. But a lot of the Christians have really read that book, probed, and they said there's so much application here. And therefore, Trinity Forum and other Christian groups have had him on for interviews for podcasts. It's a rich understanding. One of the things he points out is that we um, have really lost faith in our social institutions today, in our social life. And he, he gives some data there, which is, and I, I quote it in the book, which is just startling on the loss over the last couple of decades of our trust in the major institutions of society across the board. It's a very helpful book. Well, we'll make sure for listeners' sake to link to all of those. Um, but Dr. Allinger, I really appreciate One, this has been a really fun conversation, really enlightening. And then two, uh, just for your long tenure um, as someone I look up to in the faith, but also look up to, especially in the field of Christian ethics, I just really appreciate your ministry, the way that you continue to serve the church, especially through resources like this. And I'm just really glad you could join us today here on the podcast. Thank you. It was a real joy to interact with you, Jason. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dennis Hollinger and learn more about his new book, Creation and Christian Ethics, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week. 